are listening to the studio interview, so thank you. I'm your host, Diana Brown, and uh, with us, of course, making it all sound good, is engineer Dan Wilson. Hi, Dan. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Now, we have often closed out this show, Dan, by asking our guests to, you know, share their insights on the, the potential uh, future of live theater and the performing arts. Are we going back to front today? We're going back to front today because in this episode, we're going to be talking to two artists who, uh, and that was not missed, but we're just going to keep going. <laughs> we're talking to two artists who respectively represent and are and or are shaping that potential. So uh, give a big warm Radio Stars Network welcome to Dylan Russell and Ruben Raskin. Hello. Hi. Now, Dylan Russell is, thank you so very much for being here, you two. Dylan, you're a writer, you're a director, you're a performer, actor, dancer. Not a lot of people know about the dancer past, but we're going to be talking about that today oh, a little bit. And um, <laughs> you're a collaborator. You're very much a collaborative theater maker. And Ruben, you are a writer, an actor, and soon to be graduating high school senior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, first of all, you're here because Dylan brought us uh, your incredible work that uh, we recorded. Check it out on off the page on the Radio Star Network. We'll even be asking the author a little bit about his favorite piece. But Dylan, I want to talk to you first of all. Just You are obviously um, a busy woman. <laughs> you juggle a lot of things. And I have to say you must be a hopeful person because the very act of teaching and preparing future theater makers means you believe there is a future. Well, it either means I believe there's a future or I'm entirely crazy. <laughs> I'm Which, sure Ruben could speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> now, your relationship here is because you are, in fact, his teacher. Is that correct? And director. That's correct. I've directed Ruben in a number of shows. He was in my playwriting screenwriting class last year. And he just played one of the lead roles in our fall musical, Once Upon a Mattress. He played King Sextimus. <laughs> I love that musical. So King Sextimus, talk about that role a little bit, Ruben, if you would. Well, that's kind of ironic because he's a mute character. <laughs> yes, it's true. And he's mute largely because he has a very overbearing and overpowering partner. Is that partially true? That is true. Uh, also, he was cursed, but um, that's, that's right. just a whole different subject. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways comes off as being the most intelligent character in that play, the lesson there being... Well, you can draw your own conclusions, but this is a talk show, so we're going to keep going. <laughs> Dylan, I have to go back because I have to uh, talk about a little bit about your past this year, and I want to come back to the wonderful work that you're doing at this great school. Tell us the name of it. It's the Jewish Community High School of the Bay. We're over in the Western Edition area in San Francisco, kind of between Fillmore and Japantown, and it's my fifth year at JCHS teaching and directing and producing plays. Um, yeah, and I have wonderful students, which make it all possible. Fantastic. So again, back to that, uh, that future. Now, this is a title, little uh, fangirl sidebar, but you worked with one of my radio idols, I have to say, this year. You worked with the great Peter Finch at the K-Fog <laughs> Morning Show. Yes, on I a did. A project unrelated to the high school. But mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. That was Ah Rosebud. Um, it was Ah Rosebud with Thunderbird Theater Company, who are 
absolutely wonderful, best people in the entire world, next to Dan Wilson. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and oh. Um, We'll be putting up their URL with a picture of Dan in case, yeah. just so you don't have to miss him. But it was really funny. Um, there, was a, there was a process. Um, they had a lot of directors who were obviously interested in working on Peter's first playwriting venture. Right on. And so they had us all write a, a page treatment about what we would do if we were the director of this play. And it's, it's a send-up on Citizen Kane. And in the send-up, you know, the sled tr- is the evil device that inspires people to do terrible things. Um, and was just a ton of fun to work on. <laughs> I had, I think, four of, of the core company members involved in acting in the project, as well as, as other things, set design and lighting design. But the, um, when they told me I had it, I was really, really excited because I really wanted to work with Peter because I'd listened to him for so long on the right. radio. And so I, we arranged this meeting after they told me that, that I was going to get to do it and um, for he and I to sit down and talk. And so we went to this cafe near, near his house, and I'm thinking, I don't even know what he looks like. But, you know, <laughs> right. when you listen to somebody on the radio for so long, you form this mental picture about who they are oh, and what they look like. And Peter is this very, very tall guy, and he looked entirely different than what I thought. <laughs> and he was perhaps one of the most generous playwrights I have ever, ever worked with on a project because he had this wonderful sense of humor, as, as you would see in the piece, wonderful um, inspiration from all sorts of sources. And he would see things. I would be able to approach him very easily in rehearsal and say, I want you to look at this section. I'm not sure if this is working. What do you want to achieve between these two characters in this moment? Can you look at it? Can we adjust it? And he had no, you know, no qualms about, you know, if if it wasn't working, cut it out. If nothing it, was too precious. Nothing to him. was too precious. And if something wasn't working, but he felt strongly about it, he'd say, "Well, get, let me take it and look at it tonight, and and let me see if I can fix it because I think I know what we what we need here." Oh, that's and fabulous. he would come back, and he might edit a couple lines and put in a couple new lines because we talk about you know what was going on between the two characters mm-hmm. in that moment. And he would come back, and it would have completely solved whatever the the issue was, or what wasn't quite fully fleshed out. And I mean, he was he was just an absolute joy to work with. Both he was one of the actors in the show as well, both as an actor and as a playwright. Now, was he slightly different to work with as an actor than as a playwright? Was a different personality emerged there? No, he is one of the most grounded people I have I have ever met. He's. He's like this huge, big puppy dog. (laughs) Um, And he's just, he's so joyful and so energetic. And even the nights when I kept him late at rehearsal, and he has to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to be on the the morning show. And he was just an absolute pro, an absolute trooper, even through Tech Week, which involves many late nights and then had members from the cast on on the morning show and really you know promoted promoted the show 
wonderfully. Oh, that's great. It's great. K-Fog so, was behind it as well and allowing you to Totally. It was show. really fun to have the morning show people come on our, the first Friday night of our weekend run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, I was a little a little starstruck. little celebrity moment there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so you, you met, of course, uh, Dave Morey as well then. He actually came on the opposite night of the night I was there. I didn't want to, oh. I didn't want to, you know, haunt the cast absolutely every night of performance. I so you're not a director that comes to every show? I really try not to unless I'm producing and I absolutely have to be there to run the box office or something. I think it's really, one of the things that's really important to me as a director is that unless the show has had a really rocky rehearsal period for some Mm -hmm. reason, that once the show is open, the actors have to have their chance to make it their own. And if I've done my work correctly as a director, I have set up all of the foundation in place and then, you know, if they get out of hand or if, you know, if there's a scene that's running a little the rampant. pattern starts to slip a little. <laughs> then, you know, I'll say something to the stage manager or I might, you know, mention something to them casually and say, you might just want to pull back a little bit at this moment. But no official notes once you open. If I can avoid it, I avoid it at all costs because I think it's extremely important at that point for the show to be theirs because they're dealing with it on a nightly basis. They are reading the audiences. They are seeing what the rhythms of the show, the rhythms between themselves and between them and the audience are. And that's what makes, that's why I love doing live theater. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I was making films, I could totally manipulate every moment. (laughs) <laughs> it's true. You, you know, direct the eye. And I can totally tell the audience where to focus their eye, what to focus on. I can create motifs in a way that I, I can't create on the stage. But what I can't what I can't have in film is I can't have the audience as a third partner in a collaboration. Right. And that's the thing that I get so excited about about live theater is that the audience is as integral a piece of our collaboration as my working with a playwright on a new play with the actors who are developing a new play or or an existing play. That's that's incredible. I love uh, we love on the show hearing about the process. That's that's part of the reason we started doing this show. And everyone everyone is different, but. It, Something that has always stood out to me in the time that I've had the pleasure of knowing you and looking at your work, and Dan and I have both had the pleasure of working with you in different capacities, you are an incredibly collaborative theater maker. And uh, just going through some of your past work, I I know that uh, the company you founded, the first play you produced was definitely out of a collaborative relationship with that playwright. And I am talking about Dog Squared, your own production company, and of course your play Persistent Vegetative State. Will you, for those who are not hip to uh, PVS, will you tell us a little bit about it and then about that collaborative nature with that playwright? Sure. I was actually introduced to the playwright Robert Barker by Rika Anderson, who is a fabulous local theater actress whom I absolutely adore. And I enjoy she, her work. Uh, she is wonderful. She was just in Every Inch a King at Central Works, and was it was a reprise of, of a show that they'd done several years earlier, and it was absolutely divine to see her in that role. Um, she introduced me to Robert, I think, knowing somehow that we would be very kindred spirits. That's great. And he was going to write a piece for Rika and two other actresses, Rebecca Fisher and Frida DeLackner. And she asked me if I would be interested in directing them in this piece. And it was going to be generated collaboratively, not quite in the way that Central Works generates their work, but in 
in a collaborative nature with the, the playwright and the actresses, and that there were certain themes the actresses wanted to examine and certain themes the playwrights wanted to examine, and that we would collaborate on this project. And the thing that was really exciting to me is when Robert and I started talking about the play, and he, it was at the time of that famous case in Florida where there, there was this woman in a persistent vegetative state, essentially right. in a coma. And he came to us and said, I'm really possessed by this idea. And we all kind of looked around and went, <laughs> a play about a person in a coma? Hmm, active choice, maybe. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 not literally. He goes, right. I want to use this as a metaphor. And what he did is he crafted a play because it was right at the time of the elections. Mm-hmm. And he crafted a play using that as a metaphor for our inability or, or many people's inability here in America to feel like they can be politically active, even though we live in a society where that is a right and a privilege that we have. Right, unlike so many places. Right. And yet to feel kind of helpless to have an impact. To feel helpless to have an impact, and, and then also to realize that the system, even within our own country, right. is such a huge machine. How do you actually really make an impact? I mean, how do you go beyond just being a concerned citizen or, or having an opinion about a political faction, party, what have you, and being able to move that forward and either support a candidate, and then you know what if you find out the candidate is not what they appear to be or profess to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he wrote this really fascinating play about these three women coming to terms with their personal lives and with their ability or inability to be political in a modern world. And it was a, it was a wonderful and remarkable and challenging process, but it's one of the shows that, that I'm, I'm most proud of, not only because I feel with Robert, he and I came from such a similar point of view about theater and about playwriting mm-hmm. and about themes that I immediately felt that he and I were were kindred spirits and he's someone who I've I've actively looked to work with again although he too has been teaching he's yeah. actually been teaching in inner city schools in LA again an act of hope I think it it truly is and an and an act of of a very passionate spirit I mean that's one of the things that was most exciting for me to work with him is the degree of passion that he brings to his work. Did you find that uh, you had any journey from the beginning of working on that project to the end of it? Did your political self change in some way? It's funny because when I was in college, a lot of what I did was political theater. And so it felt less like a journey to someplace than a return to someplace. Interesting. Um, because I, I had worked on different things that had somewhat of political themes, but not so much in that way. And it was really empowering mm-hmm. to work on that piece at that point in time when the elections were going on. And then we were able to actually that year, we brought the juniors and seniors from JCHS to come see a matinee of the show and to have them talk about it because they'd been studying the election process sure. and the campaign process and different things, um, as well as having two of the students from, from my school in the show. Yes. So. 
Um, now, do you think if you were to stage that show now uh, with the upcoming election with a woman running for president, do you think there would be a different impact on your audience, or would you make any? Are there any big changes that you would want to make in that? Wow. I'd I'd have to look at it again. Right. Um, the wonderful thing about Robert's writing is, even though he envi- in this play he envisions a woman political candidate um, for president, which was very forward thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, it doesn't. Many political plays, because they are political, in their writing become time specific. Right. Whereas this one, I don't think does. It, it's it's really not. He he takes the thematic elements out of time and place, so that it it doesn't become period specific. Um, so I'm wondering if I went back, if if we could just simply redo the play and if the dynamic would change simply because the audience right and their filters because their different. filters changed it would be it would be really interesting to watch it with an audience right now particularly in light of the democratic race well i think we need to see this play come back <laughs> <laughs> dylan thank you for talking about that and i and and i so appreciate that you you uh, indulged us in our little Peter Finch fan worship there. Um, it's okay. I'm a member of the club. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a K-Fog tenor tenor? Most days. Oh, very cool. It depends on what time I have to be at work. <laughs> <laughs> now, back to your work. Um, obviously, you, if people uh, were to read your resume, they would wonder when you sleep. But uh, the uh, the reason we have Ruben with us today is because of his work um, that you encouraged him to write. Now, I would love to know, Ruben, the, this play, an amazing, amazing play. Tell us the title and tell us the structure in which this came about. Um, the title is And the Cigars Will Burn All Night Long, uh, colon, The Dreams of the Common Man. And um, it's a series of seven monologues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, because it is a dream, uh, it can be incredibly fantastical, which was one of the things I loved about it, even a bit dystopian in places. What was the assignment and specifically, and did you have any particular limitations that you had to work within? Well, the assignment was to um, write a monologue or a series of monologues, and um, that was kind of a challenge for me because I wasn't very um, used to that in my previous acting. I hadn't really encountered many large um, monologues. But fortunately, Miss Russell actually showed a um, clip of Grey's Anatomy, you know, with um, uh-huh. Spalding Gray, which was very helpful. I think it really showed um, what an amazing, um, how just amazing uh, monologues can be and just how uh, breathtaking and the storytelling aspect is just amazing. Well, I, again, I love the... the uh the idea that they are dreams because it allowed your characters to inhabit uh, worlds, maybe not ones we're used to, and, and to go places. My personal favorite was Seven, but did you have a favorite? And please do check these out. They're on Off the Page on the Radio Star Network at radiostarnetwork.com. Um, I enjoyed Seven a lot, but um, I also liked Four, the uh, potato chip. Now, as I recall, uh, our very own Dave Austin Gruen uh, recorded that. And, uh, oh, a beautiful thing he did with it. Tell us about that particular piece and why it strikes you. Um, well, actually, 
the inspiration for that piece came from just wanting to have someone scream <laughs> for a long, long time just because I thought it'd be funny, you know, to have someone scream for a long time. And then I had to come up with a monologue to uh, fit that one gag. <laughs> I love it. Mm. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, submitting a play for the Fringe Festival and had to write a description of the play before the play was written in order to get it in in time. So he then ended up having to write a play that fit that description. And so it's a little bit like that. Um, I'm always wondering when I talk to writers uh, if their characters surprise them. And did any of these characters surprise you as you were writing them? Did they go a direction you hadn't originally planned? Actually, character seven probably surprised me the most. I didn't think that I would be able to have something that maybe emotional or mm-hmm. that deep, I guess. Um, not to you know, say I'm deep, which I, <laughs> I, I can be. But um, I would have to say that that character probably was the most different sure. for me to write and probably the most difficult as well. Um, can I say what my favorite one is? Yes, I was about to ask you. Thank you. Um, I can't remember which number it is. Ruben, you're going to have to remind me. But it's the one where the dad is talking about the dream of the turtles in the river. Um, I think that one was number two. Uh, okay, that's what I thought. Yes. And I, I, lo- I love that one because of the story of the two sons. It's just there's something, and and then when he comes back at the end, and kind of m- makes he starts it out, and it almost sounds like a parable in a way that he's t- you know he's talking to these, and making connections about his life and one son that's Absolutely. gone off to college and one son that will go off to college in a couple of years, and then at the end of the piece it becomes a revelation to him, an emotional revelation about his own life, and. I don't know why, but there's just something about that one that's just very touching and, and that I, I love. It's very human, yes. That was actually um, based off a dream that my father actually had. Ah, so this was more than just your wonderful imagination. This was grounded in your own life to some degree. And that was probably the most um, personal of the monologues. This has been a Cassandra's Call production. 